animals to uh, protect themselves, and we looked at camouflage, and we had you know, all these different things with camouflage. And the next item was warning coloration. Okay. It doesn't take anybody long to re realize that when something is striped in yellow and black, it's best left alone, okay? Now, they're not, uh, and that's because an animal that is going to sting or that is poisonous, uh, it's to its advantage to advertise that. Because once an animal, another animal has learned that, then they will avoid them, okay? Uh, and it does not, doesn't take long for most animals to learn that. And so you want to, so they advertise, all right? And the problem is that not everybody on this slide is actually a stinging uh, hornet. Uh, some of them are, in fact, imposters who use the same coloration. It's called mimicry. Okay, so they're mimicking. Uh, they're trying to look like something they're not. So we call it mimicry. And the one in the, uh, this one down here, this is actually a beetle. It's not a, it's not sting, can't sting at all. But once other animals have been conditioned by having messed with something that stings, that's yellow and black, they tend to leave anything that's yellow and black alone. Okay, and so the mimicry then is something that some of these, uh, they're essentially getting a free ride. What really, really happens. Now, the downside is, is if this beetle is the first thing something eats that's yellow and black, it won't get stung and then it will eat more things that are yellow and black until it finally does pick on something that can sting. Okay, uh, and so there, well, there are some problems. The, the one over in this corner here, this is a fly. You look at the big eyes, the, the, the two wings, it's a typical fly. Yellow and black, warning coloration, leave me alone, I'm dangerous. He's not dangerous. Okay, but it looks like he is. Okay, so, uh, so warning coloration is a way of advertising that there's something about you that is potentially dangerous to a predator. Whether it's a sting, whether it's poison, whether it's whatever, uh, warning coloration advertises that. Over time, other species have evolved to mimic that warning coloration, even though they're not dangerous. Right, so this is one, the yellow and black, we all recognize that. Um, so how does that differ from camouflage and relate to mimicry? Well, uh, obviously it's different from camouflage because they're not trying to hide. Uh, they're being right out there and saying, hey, here I am. Uh, you know, you know what this means, leave me alone, uh, and this generally works. So it relates to mimicry in that non-dangerous organisms that we saw in the, in the, uh, on the slide can develop the same coloration and receive some of the same protection then from, from uh, predators. Uh, so yellow and black is one. Uh, this is another example. Uh, most frogs around here, uh, they're mostly greenish, grayish, some spots to break up the, the outline. Um, they're, they hide. I don't know if you, if you walk along a pond, how many times you hear a frog jump into the water and you never saw the frog. You only see it at the last minute as it's jumping into the water. It was right, it may be 
you know, three feet away from you. you know, didn't see it at all. Okay, that's camouflage. All right. Uh, and most frogs in, in, in this climate are like that. They do not advertise their presence because lots of things eat amphibians. They will eat frogs. Birds eat frogs. Snake eat, snakes eat frogs. Raccoons eat frogs. It's not a, it's not a, it's a tough life being a frog. Okay, lots of things are out there looking to use you for lunch. So uh, here we get mostly camouflage. Now, in the tropics, you will see frogs like this with the bright colorations, and they do this because they secrete poison in their skin. And this is their warning. You eat me, you run the risk of being poisoned. You may die, you may not die, but you'll never touch another one that looks like me again, okay? Um, all right, so, that's, so these are the various Amazonian frogs. And you can go you know, go to PetSmart and you can see poison arrow frogs. Uh, they come in uh, you know, bright green, bright blue, yellow, bright red, all different kinds of colors. The point of the coloration is that it is a warning coloration. They are warning. Now, is every single one of those species deadly poison? No, not all of them are. Most of them are. So there's some mimicry involved as well. Anytime you get something that's a very effective coloration type of uh, uh, scenario, you're going to get organisms that mimic that and get some of the protection without actually uh, doing um, This is another example. Coral snakes are quite poisonous. Uh, you won't find any around here. Uh, unfortunately, they don't really have good fangs. Uh, they have to kind of gnaw on you a bit to get the, the, the venom in, but that's quite potent venom. Okay, over there is a king snake. And you'll notice that its coloration is very similar. And so it receives the protection. You know, the organisms that have learned that coral snakes are, are, are dangerous will avoid the king snake. King snakes eat other snakes. That's what they tend to feed on. And those you will find around here. Of course, the, your, uh, the black rat snakes that are really the most, I don't know, I guess, other than garter snakes, probably the most common snakes around here, uh, they eat rodents, they, they eat frogs. I mean, they'll, they'll eat pretty much anything. Uh, and, they're, uh, and they're very good at that. Uh, that we used to, uh, our old house, we had one that kind of hung out in the crawl space under the house. That was fine. You know, you don't have mice. You know, when you got a snake in the, in the crawl space, there's no mice. Okay, uh, and they don't bother you. They, they're just—they're harmless. They're, uh, the black rat snakes are constrictors. They have no venom, no poison. So, at any rate, so anyway, this is another example: warning coloration and a mimic. Here's another one: monarch butterflies. A lot in the news about them right now because they're migrating. Uh, They're—it's amazing how far they can fly. They fly literally thousands of miles. You think these little fluttery things, and they can. They go long distances. They tend not to be eaten because they lay their eggs on a particular plant that produces a poison. It's essentially a poison in the sap, okay, milkweed. I don't know if any of you have ever been around milkweed. If you break the stem, this white, almost 
almost like rubbery on your fingers, uh, sap oozes out. This contains uh, a type of chemical that affects the heart rate of mammals and birds. It elevates the heart rate to, to the point that it can be fatal. Okay? So animals, uh, so these guys feed on that. They lay their eggs there. The caterpillars, which are brightly colored, feed on that, and they store that inside of them. And then when they metamorphose into the monarch butterfly, that poison is still in the, the, the insect. Uh, they've uh, done some studies where they took uh, uh, blue jays. You know, blue jays, uh, they pretty much anything. Uh, and they, but they took blue jays who had never seen uh, a monarch before. And, you know, a, a naive blue jay, you know, it's a butterfly. Yeah, it's lunch. They go and they eat it. They end up spitting it out. They start to retch. They foam with the mouth. And that's the last monarch they're ever going to touch. Okay. Uh, Okay, see, it works. Now, you may have to sacrifice a few to get that, but that bird is never going to eat any more monarch butterflies, okay? Warning coloration, they're bright orange, okay? You can't miss them, okay? That's the whole point. <laughs> You're not supposed to. Now, the other one over there is a viceroy butterfly. They do actually have a little bit of toxin in them, not nearly as much as monarchs, but at first glance, they're really hard to tell apart. I mean, you have to look at them. There's, there's differences in the way the veins on the wings go, and, and you know, if you look at them, you'll, you'll notice some differences. But at a quick glance, you can't, you know, they look like the same thing. So having two different species with the same basic coloration helps to perpetuate the, you know, the, the warning coloration. That works. So the, 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 basically, the um, viceroy is mimicking the monarch. It's not as poisonous, but it doesn't matter because the monarchs are. Okay, and and uh, if, if you ever if you want to have monarch butterflies around, you got to plant some milkweed. Uh, the problem with milkweed is it's a very invasive plant; it'll spread all over the place. Uh, very, fairly attractive plant, and when it blooms, well, I had a patch of it in my yard when I used to live. When that thing bloomed, you could go out there. It was a warm night. And it was just smelled so wonderful. I mean, it was a very strong perfume from the flowers at night. So at any rate, another example of warning coloration. Now, what about chemical warfare? Well, yeah, that goes on too. This is called the bombardier beetle. Um, the uh, that's a piece of a bit of wax and a string on them to kind of keep them in place, but. Um, they have two glands in the back end of the animal that have chemicals in them that, when mixed, turn almost into the boiling temperature and are toxic. And they can maneuver the back end of the, of the insect to spray in different directions. And this is what they do when they're threatened. They spray with a hot, acidic material. Again, one experience with one of these, most animals will not mess with them anymore. Okay? So they they're have a, you know, the fairly bright coloration. There are a couple of animals that will eat them, and what they do is uh, they play with them first. They poke at them, and they, and they make them keep discharging, and eventually they run out of chemical, and then they eat them. Yeah. So some animals do learn to, to, to do that, but... Uh, chemical warfare. 
essentially is what's going on here. It's spraying you with hot acid. No animal likes that. Especially if they'll, they'll uh, and the, the, I've seen uh, there's a book uh, that I've read. A guy, what he did is he, he put this in a place and he put pH paper under. And so wherever it sprayed, the color would change on the paper. And he would poke at it from different directions. And it would always spray in the direction that he, he had touched it. So very sensitive, very effective. There's the monarch. That's the, that's the milkweed. That's what the milkweed flowers look like. What you don't see on here, there's also a beetle that lives on these. It's called the milkweed bug, and, and it does much the same thing. It collects the, the poison, and, and they're bright orange and black, and you know, impossible to miss. Okay, chemical defenses. Well, we talked about the milkweed. That has a chemical defense. Uh, you know, we, we talked about it in the sense that the butterfly uses it, and the milkweed uh, beetles use it, but not many things will eat milkweed because of that chemical in them. It affects them. So milkweeds are protected by that, and many other plants are. Uh, this uh, is uh, digitalis up here. Now, we use digitalis as a, uh, as a drug for people who are having uh, a heart condition, but too much of that drug will kill you, okay? It comes from that nice, pretty flower. You'll find that in a lot of gardens. Uh, it's a very attractive flower. Uh, and so uh, the, uh, many plants have repellents. In fact, almost all plants that are subject to being eaten by insects or other animals will develop more toxic compounds in their leaves when they're being preyed on. Because that takes energy. You don't make the, you know, it's, don't make the stuff unless you need it. You know, use the energy other ways. And of course, another, uh, another frog down there. Nice bright blue. Then there's what's called the moment of truth defense. Um, this is kind of uh, last minute. Let's try this. I'm dead otherwise. Maybe it'll let me escape. Okay. The, the beetle up there is called a click beetle. They can uh, they have a, a structure in them that they can kind of cock, and when they release it, it makes a clicking sound, and it actually throws the beetle several feet away. Uh, and they would wait till the last minute. Uh, the bombardier beetle is very much a, a, a moment of truth because they don't use that unless they're actually being attacked. Skunks. Skunks don't spray unless they are, feel threatened. Okay? Uh, skunks will warn you. I don't know if you've been around skunks. They, they warn you. They'll stamp their feet. They'll stare at you and stamp their feet. When they turn around, it's best not be there anymore because they spray um, and it's nasty your dog gets sprayed uh, we had neighbors and when we lived in Maine a skunk was would go underneath their steps let the dog out the skunk was right there dog skunk poof you know uh, poor dog got sprayed all over and then, and then you know, trying to get that smell off the dog is just quite a quite a chore Okay, here's another example. Now moths, when they're resting, they have four wings. And the ones with the big eye-looking spots on them would normally be covered. So when they're normally resting, these wings would be here and be covering that. 
if they are discovered, and that lets them blend into the background better. But if they're discovered, as, as they go to try to take off, these, these two wings become visible, and it looks like two big eyes staring back. Now, it, this is not a permanent defense, but it may startle the predator long enough for the moth to get away. Because the, you know, the predator is not expecting something to, with a face that big and big eyes, and, uh, well, okay, what do I got myself into? And that hesitation may be enough for the, for the moth to escape. So that's a, another uh, type of uh, point of you know, last minute defense. Uh, this looks like a small snake, but it's actually a caterpillar. Um, again, it's kind of a, a mimicry sort of thing here. Caterpillars do all kinds of mimicry. All right, so uh, there are a number of adaptations that, that prey species can have to avoid predators, okay? And we've kind of walked through mostly you know, camouflage, chemical defenses, uh, mimicry, lots of you know, uh, last minute point of contact sort of things. A number of defenses to try to protect themselves from, from predators. Because uh, predators are going to eat them, many of them. That's how predators stay alive, they eat, they eat their prey. Uh, if they don't get any prey to eat, then they die. So, it's, you know, things, you know, one of the interesting things I've, you know, people, there's this kind of sometimes attitude that nature is just, oh, it's, everything's in balance and it's all, everything's so nice. And, but, you know, you listen to the birds singing in the morning, most of those birds are eating insects. They're eating things, you know, I mean, you know, not that we mind that particularly, but they have to eat something. You know, that's how they stay alive. All right, so... Now, predators, of course, are not uh, completely uh, at the mercy of the prey. They, they also can adapt. And so uh, any adaptation of the pre predator that helps them to overcome the prey adaptation will be selected for, okay? Uh, so some such things as uh, stealth, uh, you know, cats, very stealthy. Many of uh, many animals are uh, camouflage. Okay, many uh, predators are camouflaged. I think I have a couple of pictures of that, and they are usually what we refer to as ambush predators. They don't run around chasing anything. They just sit there and wait, and they look very well. They're hoping to be overlooked. And when the prey gets close enough, they'll grab it. Uh, so that's a, a camouflage can be used both ways. So if camouflage can be used to protect the prey species, predators can use camouflage to lure the prey close enough. And of course, sometimes chemical repellents uh, is, a, is, is an option. Uh, and so uh, this right here is a mantis. You notice it's the same color as the flower. It has lots of little projections and spikes on it. It would sit in that flower until something came along that it was willing to eat, and then it will reach out and grab it, and then it'll eat it. Okay? Um, praying mantises around here are mostly either green or brown, depending on whether they're male or female, toward the end of the year. Uh, right now, of course, they're, if there are, if you, they would just be hatching, they'd be about this big. Okay? Um, later in this, in you know, midsummer, though, you'll see some pretty good sized praying mantises. 
okay? If they are, have a lot of brown on them, uh, then they're probably, and they're usually large, fat abdomens. They're usually females because they're developing eggs. The males are usually much more slender and are usually green. Okay? And uh, males' uh, life expectancies are, are short when it comes to mating. Okay? That's, but they're only going to mate once anyway, so it doesn't matter anymore. You know, I, I guess that's, but it works for them. Okay? <clears throat> works better for the female than the male, but that's neither here nor there. Um, okay, uh, down up in the other corner, that's a fish. Um, and it is, uh, it has a little feeler-like thing on it. It has a huge mouth. It just sits there <clears throat> and waits for something to swim close enough. And then it simply opens up that cavernous mouth Water rushes in, and whatever little prey species was there gets pulled in with the water, and, and that's how they feed. It's an ambush predator. It is out there, it's not out there chasing fish, it's waiting for the fish to come to them. Okay, so lots of, lots of ways uh, to, to do that. Okay, uh, and you could find many other examples of ambush predators. Many snakes are ambush predators. They just wait. And you don't ever see them most of the time. I mean, when you really, you know, people get all concerned about snakes around here. There's probably a lot of snakes around. How often do you actually ever see one? You know, yeah. Yeah. Occasionally. But not very often do you actually ever see them because they are very good at, at hiding. All right, so um, let's go back then uh, to a quick review then of symbiosis here. We, we talked about that at the beginning, what a symbiotic relationship is. And, and symbiosis has to do then with a, a close interaction. And this usually means that the, the rarely can the two survive without each other. Uh, organisms have to be different species for it to be called symbiosis. Extended time period. And those were the three types, commensalism, parasitism, and mutualism. And we had, uh, had, had gone over some of those before. So for instance, this is an example here of a mutualistic relationship. This little shrimp here is act, it's a planar shrimp. This fish will sit here, mouth open. Shrimp will actually go inside the mouth and, and pick off little parasites, bits of food that are stuck. And so it gets fed, the uh, fish gets gets its mouth clean, and everybody's, everybody's happy with that arrangement. Uh, it's a mutualistic relationship. There are many fish in the ocean that are, are cleaner fish on coral reefs. Uh, they have stations. Big predator fish will come to that station, and while, as long as they're there, they do not attempt to eat any of the smaller fish. The smaller fish will, will get parasites off of them. They'll get, actually swim almost into their gills, because gills are an attractive place for parasites. and you know, and they, they they do that. So that's a mutualistic relationship. Both are, both uh, species are benefiting from. Uh, parasitic uh, relationship. This is the chytrid fungus we talked about earlier. It's an infection right in the skin of a, of a uh, frog, and that, that ultimately re results in the death of the frog. Uh, 
one way, another method of, I don't know why this got stuck right here. Uh, let's skip that one for a moment. Uh, I'm not sure why that one was there. Uh, this is uh, the our ants and the acacia tree. Uh, acacia trees, uh, and, and one of the problems in rainforest, wonderful place in terms of nutrients and temperature and rainfall. But if you're a plant, the problem is getting sunlight. Because there are so many plants, most of them don't get very much light. The only way you get light is you've got to grow tall. And there are two ways to get tall if there's an opening in the forest. One is you do the traditional tree thing. You make lots of wood, you know, and you grow up and you have this big thick trunk. Okay, some plants don't wait for to do all of that. What they do is they grab on to the plants that are already there and climb on them. And we refer to those as vines. There are a lot of those around here. Uh, if you go out in the woods, there's particularly along uh, an open edge where there's lots of light, there'll be a lot of vines hanging on the trees. Um, and this is another lifestyle. This is not good for the trees because it blocks their sunlight. Uh, and in some cases, this, like the strangler fig, as they refer to it, they will have vines to grow up all around the tree, and eventually those vines will start to enclose the trunk, and then they kill that tree. And you're left with a hollow tube, which is the, the, the fig, and that's and now it has essentially a trunk. All right, So not good for the tree. Now, with the acacia tree, uh, well, and then you have the problem of uh, predators. In the, in the rainforest, there are so many different caterpillars and ants and all kinds of things that are going to eat leaves, going to eat vegetation. Okay, So it's a problem. If you find an acacia tree with an ant colony, you will find that one, there are no vines hanging on it, and two, there is almost no insect damage. And the reason is that the ants will chase off insects that land on it. If the tendril of a vine comes across and attaches to the acacia, the ants will go over across that tendril to the vine and they will cut its leaves off, which then kills it. Okay, now, in return, the acacia has huge thorns on it. Okay, uh, you don't ever want to run into an acacia tree face first. Uh, I mean, the thorns can be this long. Uh, now, the thorns are usually are hollow and the ants live inside there. That's where they raise their young, they live inside, and they, so they get a place to hide, they take care of the plant. In addition, and you can't see it well in, in this, but at the junction right here, you see a little swelling here in the middle here, there's one there. These will secrete a sugary nectar-like substance that the ants will drink as an energy source. And then lastly, on the tips of a bunch of those leaves, you see a little, it's just yellow right now. These will eventually turn red, and these are high-protein snacks that the ants will cut off and use as food. So the tree is providing the ants with a place to live. It's providing them with food. The ants are protecting the tree from vines and from uh, predation by, by other insects and they do very well together. The other thing that the ants do is, as they clean out their little nests and drop all the, you know, the waste and feces down, that all falls down around the base of the tree and becomes fertilizer. 
So both species benefit tremendously by this arrangement. Now, uh, parasites, of course, uh, are taking nutrients from the host. Uh, but one thing a parasite doesn't want to do, however, it does not want to kill its host quickly. Because the hardest thing for a parasite to do is to transfer from one host to another. Okay? And it needs time to produce lots of eggs or cysts or whatever it produces that are going to go into the environment most of which will never find another host that will simply die. And so most parasites and hosts that have been had a relationship for a long period of time, the parasite does not kill the host quickly, okay? if at all, in some cases. Um, now, kinds of parasites, there's microparasites, you know, like viruses, okay? uh, which we have, to, we have to put up with. You have uh, macro parasites. These are big enough to see without a microscope. Uh, there's a tick up there. That's a macro parasite. That would be an ectoparasite because it's on the outside of the of the animal. There are also endoparasites. Endoparasites are like parasitic worms that would <coughs> be found inside of an animal. Okay, if you have if you have pets, this is a particularly if they go outdoors. This is a continual problem. Getting getting parasitic worms. Okay. There are also social parasites. Social parasites, um, an example would be cowbirds around here. Cowbirds are fairly large, and I, have a, I think I have a picture farther on. What they do is they uh, parasitize the nests of other birds. They will find a nest with some eggs in it, they'll push a couple of the eggs out, and they'll lay an egg of theirs in place. Now the, the parents, they see a, a, a baby bird with its mouth wide open, they're gonna feed it, that's what they do. That's the trigger. Uh, and so then they end up raising the cowbird chick. And if, usually the cowbird chick is the only one that survives. If, uh, if, if any of the others hatch, the, the cowbird chick will push them out of the nest and you'll end up with one bird, usually that's about twice the size of the, of the, the host species. That's a kind of social parasitism. And then we also have parasitoids, and that's an example. That's from here locally. Um, that's mistletoe in a, in a tree. Uh, pretty soon you won't be able to see that anymore because there'll be so many leaves on the trees. Uh, but that's really common in this area. Okay? The plant actually is attached to the, to the tree. It gets some nutrients from the tree, not very much in the ones here because they have green leaves, so they do photosynthesis. But there are other types or species of mistletoe that do not have leaves, and they are they are parasites. I've also seen here, I may have mentioned it, uh, Indian pipe. It's a plant that comes up around the roots of some trees. Um, it's white, pure white, has a flower, and it is a parasite. It gets its roots are getting their nutrients from the roots of that tree. So this is an example of the social parasite. This is the cowbird. Here's the, uh, the host. Here's the chick. It's not even an adult. It's not fully grown yet. But sitting there with that mouth wide open, that is the trigger for the bird to feed it. And they will do that. Okay, parasitoids here. 
Um, many wasps will uh, lay their eggs on other insects, and then their eggs hatch and the larvae consume organism from the inside. Um, let's see if I still have the caterpillar drop. Not sure it is not.
free at last, the Ladi enter a new phase of development. They swiftly spin silken cocoons. These will provide the perfect environment for their final transformation. But ironically, one of the greatest dangers the Ladi will face is being themselves impregnated by other species of parasitic wasp. Incredibly, the wounded caterpillar helps them out. So, parasites, not a fun, not a fun way to go. Uh, we have lots of loot. Basically the same that I have in the category at that point. So uh, these wasps are commonly used uh, agriculturally to protect crops. Uh, it's one of the when we talk about using uh, uh, a biologic approach to uh, pest control. These are uh, the, one of the things they'll search for. Is there a parasitic wasp that's specific for the particular pest that we have, and they might be imported. Uh, we have done that in many places. Uh, it was done, and the first time it was successful was in California, I believe. Uh, 
uh, with a uh, trying to remember the name of it, woolly agelid. I think at any rate, they imported these wasps. The wasps lay their eggs on the on the pest, and you never get rid of them all, but you reduce the damage, which is what you want. Okay, probably the first really successful biological control was uh, uh, ladybugs that eat aphids. Ladybugs uh, feed on aphids. Uh, you can actually uh, you can go to a nursery. Um, you can buy you can buy ladybugs. They come in a packet. You release them in your garden. They, they eat. Uh, and then when they lay eggs, their larvae eat aphids also. Uh, so that's a one way of controlling aphids. All right. So at any rate, uh, the parasitoids. Uh, these uh, are. Uh, Mostly wasps, majority of them have been, uh, and they are used as a way of controlling, biological control of pests. All right, now, another concept that comes with this when we look at this is something called a keystone species. Now, we talked about a community, we talked about the food web, we talked about a food chain. A keystone species is a single species in an, in an ecosystem that has a major impact on that ecosystem. Um, so elephants in the African savanna, trees would grow there if they ever had an opportunity. But elephants don't allow the trees to grow. Elephants end up knocking trees down. That's one of the things they do, okay, partly as they're feeding, but this prevents trees from taking turning the savanna into forest. Take the elephants away, this becomes a, a problem. Uh, sea otters in the kelp forest, off of, uh, particularly off of California. Um, kelp forest, kelp is a huge, huge algae. There are sea urchins that like to eat the kelp. Sea urchins especially will eat around the base of the kelp where it's attached to the, the bottom, and then they float off and they, they float away. Sea otters eat sea urchins, among other things. Uh, and so if you take this, and this happened at one point when sea otter populations got so low, we started to lose the kelp forests because the, there were areas that were just completely bare because of the sea urchins. Now, sea otters are generally coming back. They've made a comeback. They're becoming more common again. They're protected. Uh, and so the kelp forests are getting larger again. It, it, they have a major impact. Um, beavers, when they build dams, they actually create whole ecosystems that were not there to begin with. They build a dam and a stream, it floods back up behind it, and now you have a new wetland area. You have a whole new ecosystem that wasn't there before. A whole new group of organisms will be living there. Um, prairie dogs are considered to be a keystone species in the prairie. Uh, they you know the holes to help aerate the soil uh, and there are many other species that live in there um, so keystone species then are species that appear by their absence or presence as the case may be to have a major impact on that on that ecosystem that that ecosystem does is, is changed completely when that species is not present okay. uh, Generally, any one ecosystem is only going to have one or maybe two keystone species in it. All right, now, the, um, these communities and ecosystems that we've talked about are not static. 
they're going to change over time. Just like everything else, everything changes with time. And, and these are, are going to alter. And basically, the old model was that there was a predictable sequence, and you would eventually get to a stable, what was called a climax community. A lot of that's been thrown into doubt, but the sequences still occur. And we refer to these as ecological succession. It is the change in ecosystems over time. And there's two basic types. There's primary. Primary succession occurs where there was nothing there at all. Uh, back in the 1950s, uh, an island uh, rose out of the North Atlantic near Iceland. Um, a volcanic activity, bare rock. Today, there are lots of plants there. There are birds living there. That would be primary succession. There was nothing there, primary succession. Uh, if you had a rock face um, that was just bare rock and you would get some lichens growing and they would make cracks and then grasses would get in the and so on, that would be primary succession. Now, secondary succession is where a community was already there and it's been damaged, it's something has happened to it, uh, and then you begin to get secondary succession. Sometimes it may be almost completely destroyed the original ecosystem. There's still some, there's still some members of it there. Now, this is a, a, a this photo that's taken here. Is, uh, there are two photos taken at the exact same place. Um, I think they're about five to eight years apart. I'm not sure the exact timing. This is from uh, the mountain in the background is Mount St. Helens. This was an area after the eruption there was really nothing there, okay? Now, many years later, not that many years later, you're starting to get shrubs, uh, there are grasses, there are animals there, there are insects, spiders, uh, uh, large, you know, large animals, elk will move through the area. Uh, that's succession. That's, you know, this would be really primary succession because there was absolutely nothing there to start with. Everything was killed. And a wide radius. That was a big deal. I know it was before most of you were born, so it, it doesn't mean much uh, in, in many ways. Um, but uh, it uh, was quite a uh, quite an event. Nobody had experienced. The U.S. had not experienced an eruption like that. Would the eruption itself been secondary because it was closed and destroyed at all? Well, the regeneration afterwards, if there's nothing left alive, is primary. But uh, you, I don't know if you can see in the, this, uh, they had some warning, they tried to get people out, not everybody made it out, there were several number of people killed. Uh, this, you see this opening right here? This part of the volcanic cone literally blew out, completely blew up. And there was ash uh, fall all the way to Minneapolis. Okay, this is out in the uh, Cascades in, in Washington. Uh, the, the, the dust cloud went long, long distances. There were areas in Idaho and Montana where it was like, like fog. There was so much ash in the air uh, for a few days. And then the big particles of ash, uh, they kind of fall out pretty quickly. Then the tiny stuff will be there literally for years. And it'll actually go all around the planet you know, in the upper atmosphere. Um, that was probably, that's the biggest, uh, 
volcanic eruption in the continental U.S. certainly, uh, well, in my lifetime, uh, they're not that common in the continental U.S. Okay, now Hawaii, that's another whole issue. Hawaii, the, all of the Hawaiian Islands are volcanic. Uh, the old ones no longer have any active volcanoes, but that's how they were created. And of course, uh, the big island, uh, Hawaii, has an active volcano, has had for well, as long as I know. Uh, it's still building. Okay, so volcanic action is not overly, now, so that would be another example, though, of some primary succession when the lava flow completely covers an area and kills everything. Eventually, that lava flow will be colonized. That would be primary succession. Okay. So, uh, the question is not so much of if there will be another volcanic eruption out of all this. It's just a matter of, of, of when there will be one. Uh, and uh, we're not very good at predicting it yet. It's just not, it's difficult. Probably the most common ones uh, that are actually in the United States are in Alaska. There was one just about a couple weeks ago. There was an eruption out in the, uh, along the, the Aleutian chain. And that, those are routine. Nobody gets excited about those. They happen all the time. You know, when we lived in Anchorage, we had a, a volcanic eruption close enough that we had some ash that fell right where we lived. It wasn't very much. It was just kind of a dusting. But the stuff's like, it's uh, it, uh, highly abrasive. Yeah, they, they, we got sent home early. They said, put your car in a garage if you've got one. Do not turn your windshield wipers on. You'll just scratch right into the glass. Yeah. Uh, fortunately for us, it rained about a day later, and most of it got you know, all rinsed down into the soil, and so we didn't have a major problem. But uh, This is the stuff they worry about getting into airplane engines when they have a major eruption and they divert air traffic around it. Iceland has gone through that a couple of times. Um, there, so that you, you can't fly through it. You get so much of that dust in, it'll actually shut down the engine. All right, so anyhow, primary succession. Uh, the first things that are there in primary succession are referred to as a pioneer species. Uh, for the most part, they're lichens. Uh, that's what we start with. Remember, lichens were fungus and algae. Um, they can live where very few other things can. Uh, they have, and then maybe a few small plants might get in there. They have short life cycles. They gradually improve the community. And so you start with bare rock, lichens, some mosses. You get a few weeds in here, then some grasses. And then eventually you start to get some shrubs and trees. Usually you'll get pines uh, first because they grow very rapidly in the sunlight. Pines love sunlight, and they, they, they grow quickly. Uh, but then, uh, the, but their seedlings don't grow in the shade. So when pines start to grow up, their own seedlings can't be successful underneath them. And you'll start to get deciduous trees. Uh, in this case, uh, they're talking about uh, hickories and oaks. And then you get a, a mature oak hickory forest with black walnut, maples, tulip, poplars. This is, uh, this would be the pattern here in, the, in Tidewater, Virginia, as you had primary succession. Most of the forests around here are oak hickory forests, at least those that are still standing, and a lot, a lot of those, but uh, where they are, you'll find a lot of oak and hickory, tulip poplars, uh, sweet gums. Those are our, our, kind of our standard trees here. Uh, 
So uh, th this would be then the process. Now, the theory has always been that once you got to that Oak Hickory, uh, quote, climax, unquote, quote, uh, community, that it would stay there forever. Well, nobody believes that today, that there will be change in the future. Just may not know what it's going to be until it happens. Uh, like, we get a hurricane. Uh, well, whether it's Irene or Isabel, they come through. And remember all the trees uh, that were down after those? Uh, okay, that opens up. Those are openings in the forest, a place for pine trees to grow again. Um, you know, that changes the composition, and then it will gradually work its way back to that, to that uh, oak hickory forest. Um, it, so this is really common here. This is another one. This is this, though, is a, a, uh, an example of secondary succession. And we have a lot of this around here. Uh, there, if you go out into the counties, you'll find that there are a lot of ab abandoned farm areas, uh, areas that are no longer farmed. You'll see old farmhouses that are covered and you know, starting to fall over and covered with vines. Uh, so there was a community there. Uh, and then uh, it was it was human maintained, but it was a community, an ecosystem. Uh, humans stopped maintaining it, and then you get secondary succession. You get you know you begin to get changes, and usually the first things you get ragweed, crabgrass, stuff that likes open spaces, grows easily, seeds are spread easily. Uh, we usually refer to them as weeds, but that they have a they have a function in, in this process. And then you'll get into some wildflowers, blackberries are common around here, uh, and then into the pines and ultimately the oak hickory forest. If you were up north in Canada, again, lichens and moss on the bare rocks and then some flowers, and then you get junipers, uh, blueberries instead of blackberries, uh, and then various types of pine ultimately finishing up with white spruce and some paper birch would be in there as well. A different kind of climax community, but this is still succession. So the point here is ecosystems are never static. They're dynamic, they're changing. What that, what's causing the change may be weather, it might be volcanic, it might be earthquake, it might be, it might be humans, it, 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 but changes are occurring to these ecosystems. Call that succession, primary and secondary succession. Uh, here's another example. Uh, you, this you might see around here. This is all rock here, which you wouldn't know out here. But this is a small pond, um, and you have a lot of uh, water, well, algae, and then usually some rooted plants in here. And as they grow and then they die, the sediments accumulate, and the plants begin to take over more of the, the uh, little pool area, and eventually. There's no water left. It's all just plants. This is another example of ecological succession. Throughout in the Midwest, there's a lot of areas of small lakes. Uh, well, in fact, we're in our subdivision where we live. We have a, well, it's not a, sort of a lake. It, it, there's a dam and there's a, a lake that people with the expensive houses live on. Um, and. Uh, but they're constantly having problems with uh, the, the plant life. They have to treat it to get rid of the, so much of the plants in it. And then a lot of places they will periodically dredge them out because they get shallower and shallower as more and more stuff accumulates. And eventually you would not have a lake anymore. 
Well, if you bought property on the lake, this is not an acceptable solution, usually. Okay? So a lot of them, they'll actually pay for people to come in. They dredge out the bottom, make them deeper again. I mean, it's, it's sort of like taking care of the, of the houses on the, uh, on the beach at, uh, in Nags Head. You, know, you can't win in the long run. You may have short term, but in the long run, the beach will win. Okay, now there was an article this morning about, and it didn't tell me where in Nags Head, but there's a, a road that used to have houses on both sides. They can't even keep the road open anymore. The houses on the side of the beach, all but one, are now gone. Uh, they, they were damaged so badly they were torn down, got rid of, can't rebuild there. And now the houses on the, the they can't keep the road open anymore to overwash they go in they put the gravel down you know they try to keep it open and the next storm they get overwashed they get sand in there the road is no longer passable and now the houses on the other side of the street are in danger uh, they've given up on the pretty much given up on the road they just say hey we just can't do this the, the ocean is going to win uh, also another article this morning about how the east coast is sinking the land it's not just ocean rise that's one thing and that is happening but the land uh, in this area uh, well not just here but all the way up almost to New England uh, and then down through the Carolinas is actually subsiding at the same time uh, a couple of reasons were given um, one of them is that uh, the major reason is that uh, for agriculture we're pumping so much groundwater out that uh, and it's not being replaced as fast as it's being taken out and the ground slowly sinks. The, the major point of the article is Hyde County in, uh, in North Carolina, if you, any of you know where that is. That's, that Hyde County is the county that Ocracoke is in, but they're talking about the mainland, not out on the island. I don't, again, there's places like that, Ocracoke Island. How long can will they hold out? You know, we don't know. Okay, so that's succession, though. That is ecological succession. We're not happy with it when it destroys our houses, but that's still ecological succession. Okay, so there's, that's just another example there. Um, this is just a hypothesis uh, that we talked about uh, species richness versus species diversity. Species richness had to do with just how many different species were there. Species diversity takes into account how many of each of those species are present. If you have a, an ecosystem where almost all of the, let's say there's eight species in it, or 20, it doesn't matter. 90% of the organisms are all one species. As long as I have all those species there, I have a species richness, you know, of, you know, of let's say 20. But I have a very, my species diversity is extremely low because almost all of the organisms are the same species. Now I could have another area with the same species in it, and if I had a relatively uh, equal number of all of the species, species richness is exactly the same, or richness, because I had the same number of species, but the diversity would be considered to be much higher because I have quite a few of all the different species. Okay, now, what this is saying is that the number of species in a community uh, tends to decline with time, but, in be, but when there is a disturbance to the ecosystem, then you will see an increase in the number of species for a while. Okay, and so that the, 
richness of a community is greatest kind of halfway in between disturbances. Because that it perturbs the thing, you start to get secondary succession again, and then you, you, uh, you build up more species, and then as it gets older, you tend to lose some of it. Okay. Uh, so we're going to talk next time about ecosystems in more detail. We're going to look at energy flow, nutrient cycles, uh, all of this kind of stuff. We're going to look at biogeochemical cycles. Uh, and uh, that takes care of uh, what we need. That will take care of this chapter. And then I have a uh, case study on uh, uh, sea lions in Alaska that we're going to do. We'll work on that in class because this won't take that long to finish. We're going to do that in class. Yes. Next one. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 there's a thing on Blackboard that tells you exactly what date every one of them is due. No, I don't know off the top of my head. I, is it what? Twenty second is what I'm told. Yeah. Tried to spread them out so that you had a little bit of time to do them. And are you finding those useful to understand what's in the chapters a little bit? Yeah, well, that, that's the point. Then there's success.